The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Elephants. We are hearing a lot of sad and distressing news about the crises facing the world's elephant populations today. Massive decline in numbers, slaughters of entire family groups to supply the ivory trade, the multitudes of campaigns to stop the demand, to stigmatize and stop the killing in the name of big business, profiteering and illegal trade in both live and dead elephants. Two, the knowledge we have as to why we shouldn't be keeping them in captivity. Today, we're going to hear the other side, about the elephants themselves, what we have learned through decades of research that tell us why we need to stop ourselves from bringing this magnificent mammal to the brink of extinction. My guest today is Dr. Joyce Poole, one of the world's foremost authorities on elephants, who has studied their social behavior and communication and cognition of the African elephant for over 30 years, and who has dedicated her life to their conservation and welfare, along with her colleagues and uh, project workers, they have formed the world's longest study and unparalleled body of knowledge. Welcome, Joyce. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much, Ellie. I know this is a really hectic time of year. We met at the PAWS conference, which was really busy then, and I know you've been nonstop since for the, for the entire last month. So uh, we've got a lot to get into today. I'm very excited about hearing all that's going on, and um, I followed your work for 20 years. Your enthusiasm has inspired so many people around the world, especially young Kenyans, who today hold key elephant conservation and welfare positions in Kenya. But let's start by telling us about you, what it was about elephants that called to you. Well, you know, I, I grew up in Africa. I moved to Africa with my family when I was six years old and met my first elephant, in fact, in Amboseli, where I later came to work at that age and was charged by a huge male in a cloud of dust and my father stalled the car. So I had, from a very early age, a, a kind of rush of adrenaline and awe of, of, of these enormous, magnificent animals. And I think that that feeling about them has, has really just stayed with me 
um, my whole life. When I was 11 years old, still living in Kenya, I had the opportunity to, um, to listen to a lecture by Jane Goodall at the, at the National Museums of Kenya. And um, so I was, I was very fortunate to hear about her work. And I told my mother at that time that I, too, wanted to study animals when I grew up. So this brings up a, a, a question in my mind. This, you moved there when you were six years old. And without giving away dates and ages and whatever, um, and reading Peter Beard's book back in the 60s and 70s, the amount, the number, the sheer number of elephants has declined. What was it like when you were a child to be able to see those massive herds of elephant moving across the Kenyan landscape? Oh, it was just incredible. You know, my my family, well, we spent so much time on safari um, as a child. You know, all our holidays were in the Mara or in Amboseli. And, and I think, you know, of course, there were just so many animals, not just in the national parks, but the whole way, you know, if you took the train from Mombasa, you saw animals, you know, you could just look out the window and watch them, watch them as you went by. But I think the thing that really strikes me now, um, in addition to the loss of, of animals, is just the sheer number of people. When I grew up in Kenya, there were 10 million people in the country, and there are 45 or 45 plus million now. So just the, the, the stress on the land and, and the stress on the wildlife is, is um, well, it's remarkable. And I imagine the stress on the people, the, the conflict, not only human-elephant conflict, but conflict between wildlife and people, the security issues, people um, against wildlife. I mean, I meant to say more people on wildlife, but also wildlife on people. The the numbers have just dramatically decreased across the landscape. I can imagine it seems rather empty to your eyes now, today. Yes, it does. Um, but I think also to point out, you know, the people themselves are under so much um, pressure, you know, f- families uh, having to move elsewhere away from their own families just to find their own plot of land. So there really is incredible pressure here. It's a, this is a lot of what we talk about on Our Wild World is, you know, the social security of, and not only of wildlife providing safety and security from them against people, but the social security that people require. And as population increases, the one thing that always surprises me is that in all the solutions and considerations that we come up with, there is not more that deals with us choosing to reduce our numbers. So uh, we could get into that a lot and a conversation for another day, (laughs) but let's get back into a little bit more and tell us about... um, elephants themselves, their social structure, their capacity for empathy. Um, You have learned so much. Let's share some of that. You know, when I started in Amboseli all those years ago, and in fact, it it will be 40 years um, next September. Uh, so, but when I started all those years ago, uh, I was working with Cynthia Moss, and I worked with Cynthia for many, many years. But I was uh, assigned the the males uh, to study, 
And I did study them as a my undergraduate thesis, my PhD, and even my postdoc, looking at uh, the phenomenon of, of must and describing the whole must is a uh, a period of, of of sexual and aggressive behavior among adult males. Uh, but that study led me into a study of elephant communication because it was through the sounds that those those must males make. They make a particular um, sound called a, a must rumble, which sounds like water running through a, a deep tunnel. And when I first heard those sounds, I actually thought it was the ear flapping. It's so... Uh, such low, uh, such a low frequency sound, and it made me think that how how is it that an animal so aggressive would be making such a soft sound? Yeah. And then I I began to think, well, maybe I'm not hearing the sound properly. Maybe this animal is making uh, producing sound below the level of human hearing. And I was fortunate to at that time when I had this thought. Um, meet someone who suggested that I contact Katie Payne, who herself had come up with a similar thought and had actually gone off or was about to go off to record Asian elephants in a, in a captive situation. And, and uh, she came back to me and said she'd found that indeed Asian elephants were producing sound below the level of human hearing. And so we then collaborated on a study of of communication in African elephants in Amboseli and, and that, found that they too, yeah, uh, go ahead. I was, I was just, I'm sorry to interrupt. That resulted in the publication of a really wonderful book that I read with um, amazement, uh, Silent Thunder, uh, which was about right. the infrasound that elephants make and how far this carries. Uh, go ahead and, and explain some of that to us. Well, uh, we st- we worked in Amseli together, um, looking at some of the the sounds that I had already identified, like the "let's go" rumble and the contact, the contact call and contact answer, uh, the mating pandemonium, uh, and the must rumble, of course. So we looked at some of these calls and recorded them and measured their um, their sound pressure level. You know, the number of decibels. Um, and also the fundamental frequency. And we hypothesized that, in fact, some of these calls were being used by elephants to communicate over quite long distances. Well, you just mentioned and touched on a subject that we're going to get into a little further in today's program, the communications and how far it travels and um, the understanding and putting together that this call, this sound, means this that the body of work and the length of time you've studied animals, uh, elephants, you've been able to actually understand what they're saying. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later because it's very exciting. But let's go back a little bit about um, you studied male elephants. We typically understand the matriarchal mother-infant-child relationship, and we have a, a good knowledge, body of knowledge of that, of public awareness, the family structure. It's a matriarchal society, but the bull elephants are not, and their society, their culture, isn't as well known. Um, Tell us a little bit about that, because there was an incident in South Africa that I believe you were involved in, where some juvenile elephants from a culling or a poaching uh, were translocated, and they um, ended up being delinquents. And how how did they go about solving that problem? 
Well, I just want to say I actually wasn't involved with the with the delinquent elephants. I'm I'm quite well behaved, but uh, no. <laughs> I, <laughs> I okay. I understand how I misspoke that. <laughs> no, now what happened was that uh, of course uh, there was there was a tradition of culling in South Africa, unfortunately, and uh, what they used to do was to 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 reduce numbers of elephants, they would kill off family groups but leave the young babies alive uh, and capture them and sell them to zoos and circuses. In fact, in the United States, many of the elephants who, who now populate our, our zoos and in some cases circuses are, are cull, were cull orphans. Um, and so they experienced horrific, horrific things. Uh, gladly now that that practice has stopped but some of those elephants were also used to kind of repopulate areas that had been hunted out before hunted out before one of those was Pilanesburg National Park and then there were a a number of other places small reserves that were also populated with these young elephants and of course they grew up um, without any role models just a, a bunch of orphans kind of dumped in a, in, a, in, a, in a habitat and left to survive. On top of that, they had that horrible experience, and elephants are, are very like us. You know, they're long-lived, they're intelligent, they're highly social. So when experiencing um, having your whole family butchered in front of you, um, them being roped up and and shipped off to another place, you can imagine it had it had a, a a serious emotional impact on these or psychological impact on these young animals. But um, I was approached by by people working in Polanisberg with a problem, and that problem was that males had gotten to teenage years and had started coming into must very early, and instead of uh, busying themselves with females, looking for females, they were mounting and tusking rhinoceroses. So I said that what I thought, because based on my work in Amboseli, I had noticed that older males, um, because they're more dominant, could keep younger males out of must. So I suggested that what they should do is to bring in some big bulls uh, from some older males from Kruger, um, and then, you know, see, I thought that that would work to prevent these young males from coming into must and also provide a role model for them. It sort so, of uh, in fact, like, it worked. It sounds like the elephant version of Lord of the Flies, that without <laughs> adult supervision um, or just young gangs of children and a breakdown of, we can relate to this, and the breakdown of our human family structure, what happens to our youth? And what you've... Um, done through your body of research is to understand that elephants as you said are so much like us or maybe it's we're so much like elephants because they were here before us that these these social and um, emotional impacts do have an effect on their growing up so um, we've got a few minutes left for this section Uh, we've talked recently about the crises facing elephants and how poaching destroys the family structure, which you just enlightened us that mm-hmm. without the the family, both the mother and the bull solitary solitary bull bull groups, young elephants 
uh, don't grow up being socialized. Um, but what is it happening? What's happening today? It's it's creating. Um, if this is a sticky bit of a question, and we can pick it up after the break, um, if we get to a point of I hate to use the word managing elephant populations because it covers so many things that could include killing and culling beyond natural death and we get rid of the the concept of elephants in captivity. What will happen with the pressure that we were just talking about, increased human population, elephants being forced into smaller, smaller areas? What will happen Well, I think there are going to... Yeah, well, I think there are going to be some places where it's just not possible to have elephants anymore. And then there will be other other places where it is possible. And where it is possible um, are, are likely to be places where there, are, there aren't such high populations of people, where people are not grow, growing crops, drier areas, low rainfall areas. And, and in those places, we need to make sure that elephants can continue to move. Um, that is, is going to be really important. So we're working hard where, where we're working in the Mara ecosystem to, to ensure that even where there are settlements, there are routes that elephants can use to get from one protected area or one safe haven to another. And elephants know where these safe havens are. They, they understand their corridors. I mean, we're talking about an animal that evolved to shift and shape uh, continents. They are, they are so smart. You know, they have extraordinary sensory abilities. And they, they know, you know, who's a threat to them and who's not a threat to them. So they're, they're using those skills all the time. Um, to, you know, avoid people or to gravitate toward those people that represent safety to them. This is amazing. So, unfortunately, we have to cut away to a quick break. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Joyce Poole, uh, head of Elephant Voices, and uh, she has so much amazing information to share. So, after the break, we're going to pick up with what she was just talking about, their knowledge and ability to know where we are and avoid us. So, stick with us. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. 
We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss with my guest, Dr. Joyce Poole, and we're talking about Elephant Society. Um, right before the break, we were talking about elephants' movements, their incredible intelligence, cognition, and ability to communicate not only with each other, but through that, communicate with us. At the PAUSE conference, where I got to, was fortunate to meet up with Joyce, she had done an incredible presentation of a mapping of a single female elephant's movements. Um, we were talking about elephants. Uh, Joyce, you'd said they know where safe zones are, where security is. Um, tell us a little bit about what you discovered from the collaring of this one female. Well, um, it's a female, actually, who had been moved because of human-elephant conflict uh, from an area maybe 200 kilometers to the north. But she made an extraordinary journey um, from the Maasai Mara National Reserve into the Serengeti and then 70 kilometers to the east to a, um, a, a forest that we're very interested in. And through her movements, we were able to well, one, know that elephants are moving back and forth to that forest, but also the particular route that they're using. Um, I happen to have plotted all the settlements in that area, and I noticed when I was playing her her movements back, you know, you can play it on, on Google Earth, uh, and I noticed that she was very carefully avoiding settlements. I then was able to get from Save the Elephants, because it's one of the elephants that they're following, ask them to, could they give me the data divided into day and night and fast and slow movement? And it was very clear that where she felt, when she felt insecure, you know, she would, uh, or sorry, during the day, when people are around, she would move onto the hilltops where it was uh, thickly vegetated. And at night, when she knew people were asleep, she would come down out into the open and closer to the settlements. When she needed to move across open area, like make a, 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 a big sort of migration to the forest, she did so at night. And she took her several hours sort of get, uh, um, waiting until, until dark, sort of waiting in the bushes near to a settlement. And then as soon as it was a dark, she streaked across and made it all the way across this, this open habitat, maybe 40 kilometers, and then hid again during the day in the bushes before making the rest of the journey. So 
Um, of course, we have learned so much in, in Amboseli, uh, where I worked for many years, uh, studying um, how that, you know, learning through experiments that elephants are able to distinguish between different kinds of people who represent different levels of threat to them. We know that. We know also from work carried out there by Karen McComb that they're able to um, distinguish between the voices of people that represent different levels of threat. So they're, they're taking all this kind of information uh, and thinking it through and deciding what to do. So when you say they, you, you're referring to the elephants. Oh, they, yes, the elephants. <laughs> okay, not we, but they being elephants. And there's been um, a lot of uh, publication on this, and I've talked about it and re- referenced it on Our Wild World. So this is a great time to point out, look up elephantvoices.org on the web, and uh, you'll find tremendous amount of information, all the work that Joyce has done. Uh, done with her colleagues, the collaborative efforts between uh, differing organizations, which is so critical. We need to work together. And um, you can donate, you can get on their uh, mailing list, and you can make a difference. And by you, I mean our listeners. So I want to go back and correct one misconception that we had started uh, in the first section about male elephants in your studies. There's the common misconception that bull elephants are solitary. Well, you just told me different. Tell us a little bit about that. (laughs) Well, you know, um, males, they, males live with their families till they're about 14 years old, and then they become independent. They leave their families. But they don't just go off on their own. They tend to join up with other families. And until the age of 25, they spend, at least in Amboseli, where I worked for so many years, they spend 80% of their time in the company of females. And when they're not with females, they tend to be off with other males. I hear you were took a breath as if you're going to ask me a question. Well, I was, I was thinking, you know, the bachelor's club. So the guys <laughs> like to hang well, out together. Well, they like the company of women, but it's also the women don't really want the males around all the time either. They're busy doing family matters. So these these big guys from teenagers to elderly, they live in groups and communicate with each other and teach each other. What what are they, from your research, and we're going to get into some of this exciting work that you're doing, what are they talking about? Well, I mean, the, the males actually spend most of their time with, with family groups, even until age 25. So it's only when they're starting to become sexually active in their late 20s that they start to spend a lot of time with other males. And then what we've learned from, from, from work by Patrick Chio, also in Amboseli, is that these bull groups tend to be, um, many of them tend to be relatives. So, so they, they grow up together and they go off and do their thing. But then when, they, when it comes time to spending time with other bulls, they tend to gather together with, with, with relatives. So, you know, it's not this, this as different so from the family. Yeah, it's very exciting. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. 
Well, no, I just said it's very exciting. You know, we tend to think, and, you know, there's so many elephants, males in captivity, who are held, uh, you know, held in sort of solitary confinement. But in fact, males spend very little time alone. And when they are alone, it's when they're sexually active. It's when they're on the move looking for uh, females, uh, receptive females. So they're going from one family to another family looking for receptive females. And then then they want to be on their own. You know, they've got a mission. You just brought up an important, important point. Uh, elephants and males in captivity. And um, let's let's spend a little time here why we shouldn't be keeping elephants in captivity and how much we've learned that tells us we need to shift this uh, our, our behavior of doing this and some of the changes that are taking place in the zoo world, the captive world, and um, stopping circuses, banning the bullhook, and why it's important that our mindset change, that when we go to the zoo and to be entertained or to learn, that why it's so critical that elephants not be kept solitary, not only for space and and needs, but give us a little more about that. Well, you know, my feeling is, of course, elephants should not be held captive at all. They just are, um, they need so much space to be healthy, to be healthy in their body, to be healthy in their mind. They need uh, uh, to be social in the wild, you know, they know hundreds of animals. They meet with hundreds of different individuals on a daily basis. So, um, but there are elephants who are held captive. So now we need to, one, we need to make sure that the elephants who, who are captive have the best, you know, best possibilities. So we've got to move them into uh, large, lar- much larger habitats. And that's starting to take place in the United States, unfortunately. Um uh, there are still elephants being caught in the wild and they're being shipped to uh, other parts of the world that don't have, haven't been so enlightened. So, for instance, right now we are battling against something like 34 baby elephants that have just been captured in Zimbabwe and are due to be shipped, uh, the rumor is, to China. Uh, the other talk is to the UAE. Uh, we are, I mean, it's desperate. So uh, it is still happening, and it's something that everyone should be aware of. Those, those animals are going to be confined to a life of misery. So you say these, ba- these babies are being captured. Does that mean they're being taken from living family groups, or does that mean the family groups are being killed for ivory? And then we can segue into how our listeners, how we as individuals can make our voices be heard to stop this. So where are these babies coming from? And where well, they, and, and what's the point? Well, they were they were being they're being caught. They were caught in Wangi National Park. It's hard to believe that in a national park you would go out and, and capture animals. But uh, they were apparently the families were chased with vehicles and helicopters, and the animals they were shot. Bullets were shot over their heads to separate the mothers from the babies, and then the babies were captured, and they're being held. Um, just near the headquarters of Wangi National Park in Zimbabwe. Um, And they're due to be shipped any time. So we're desperately trying to raise awareness about this issue 
and stop this shipment and rehabilitate them back to the wild. Uh, I mean, Zimbabwe has to be shamed into stopping this because they have uh, done it, you know, over and over again. And uh, oh, what, what can we do? It's, what can so our upset. listeners do? How, how well, right, right to the 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 um, Zimbabwean ambassador um, in the United States and and tell tell him what you think. So we need to inundate. We need our voices, and that's a motto here on Our Wild World. Speak up. The world is listening. Um, let your voice be heard. Are, is there a petition site or on your website, elephantvoices.org, where people can find this information? And uh, Facebook, where where can we do this? I mean, everybody talks about um, so much time and busy days, but this this will take, what, a minute? There must be yeah. a petition you, or a cause or something, and, and time is of the essence here. There is an Avaz uh, pe- uh, petition. Uh, we did post it on our Facebook page, Elephant Voice's uh, Facebook page. You'll have to go back uh, a week or so. Um, uh, but it also was it is a petition by Johnny Rodriguez from Zimbabwe, and I will try to get that information to you um, in the next section. Well, I'll, I'll also do some research, and when I post for this episode, which will air um, on Monday the 22nd, which is a wink-wink, hint-hint to our listeners that now is a really great time in this holiday spirit of giving and being thankful that your voice can be heard and you can make a difference. Every action counts. So please go to elephantvoices.org and find out what you can do. So we have a few minutes left in this section. Um, and I'd asked a question, what is the point if we're going, if we, the world, people, Zimbabwe, and we don't stop this, the general public, what is the point of these baby elephants going to China to grow up and be used for ivory? China has a population of 300 elephants that are almost sacred to them. They don't touch them. They're they're highly secure. They're highly protected. Yet China has the next to the United States the largest demand for ivory. They are gearing up. There are campaigns to stigmatize and stop the demand. But this is a new concept. That that's demand for ivory, dead elephants. Now you're talking about live living elephants. Where are they going this to is, go? This, they're going to end up in zoos and circuses. Um it's still unsure exactly where they're headed because China has has denied uh, knowledge. So, you know, we're still not sure. We're desperately trying to find out. But we do think they are headed to China. Um, a number of elephants were shipped to China before and most of those have since died. Uh, there are m- many zoos that would like to have elephants, unfortunately. Um, and they're they're kept in uh, really appalling conditions in old fashioned, the way zoos were in the in the United States, you know, twenty years ago, um, small cement uh, enclosures with the bars, you know. Uh, so it's not good at all. And <laughs> this is a travesty. It's it's an absolute travesty. And I hope my our audience, our listeners out there, are understanding just how complex, how incredible, how smart, how clever 
this species is. They, as Dame Daphne Sheldrick says, they are just like us, but better than us. I would take it a step further that we are much closer to elephants, and we're not nearly as good as they are. I'm surprised they even continue to forgive us for all our mistakes, but I guess they're a lot older than we are, and we're probably like those young juvenile elephants, and they're they keep giving us chances. So, listeners, please, uh, this is a desperate situation, as Joyce has said. We have a window of opportunity to stop these baby elephants being moved and hopefully get them repatriated back to their families. Is that possible, to get them back into their families? Or will they become orphans and end up at a place that is, and I don't mean to make this sound bad, at, at a in an orphanage like the Sheldrick Trust and become a, a population of their own or will their families take them back? I think it's not possible to get them, unfortunately, back to their own families. But um, there, there have been cases like this before where elephants were, were then released back into the wild, uh, cared for, you know, for long enough till they reached an age where they could could go back into the wild, something along the lines of the Sheldricks. But it's a long process. Um, and in oh, the meantime, we've, just... we've wrought, wreaked wrought havoc on another family. Absolutely. I mean, many families, many families. Many families. And, you know, these... These, these are the, the thing that disturbs me so much is that when you look at these poor babies, you can see how distraught they are. Um, and that just gets me. It's going to be, you know, another how many years, if they do survive, how many years of, of, uh, of a horrible life ahead for them. So we're going to have to cut to, away to a break. Um, we're in the middle of a really interesting conversation. So after the break, we're going to come and pick this back up a little bit. The effects of what happens to an elephant. We're going to carry it just a little bit further. Um, this, why we have elephants that go on rampages that we like to call a rampage or a rogue elephant once they're in captivity. So stick with us. My guest is Dr. Joyce Poole and we'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. 
In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss in Our Wild World with my very special guest, Dr. Joyce Poole. So right before the break, uh, we discussed, um, brought up a little teaser of a question of um, the elephants in captivity, when they escape the circus, uh, when they um, are in the zoo and display aggressive behavior, that everything Joyce has told us about today how these elephants came to be where they are in captivity, the horrible conditions under which they were captured, the traumatic memories that they do recall, and that's going to lead us into an exciting uh, project that Wild Eyes is funding and collaborating with Elephant Voices. But let's talk about, you know, it's not the elephant's fault. These elephants, when they escape, usually end up dead. Um, But it's not the elephant's fault. Let's just talk a little bit about why it's our fault yeah well i i mean there are many cases where elephants uh end up killing people or injuring people in in zoos uh in circuses um and it, it it's interesting because elephants uh, very often when someone is killed or, or injured um the, the zoos will say, oh, well, it was just an accident. Well, I don't believe it was just an accident. I believe that elephants know exactly what they're doing. So on the, on the one hand, it's, I do believe it's their fault. They, they determined what they were going to do, and they did it. But the reason they did it is years of frustration um, being held in conditions that don't allow them to meet their needs, their social needs, uh, their need for space, their need for activity, their need for uh, searching for, manipulating food, uh, communicating with other animals, distant animals, uh, searching for mates, uh, raising their own offspring, you could go on and on. These, these are animals that are so like us in so many ways, so different as well. Uh, but just, I think it's fair to imagine what you would feel like if someone locked you in your bathroom for your whole life. Uh, so the, there's an, in, in an intense amount of frustration built up. Uh, in these in these individuals, not to mention the fact that they how they were captured, those that were captured in the wild, and the trauma that they've been through. So these terrible events, 
would an elephant who's, as you said, has been locked in the equivalent of a bathroom for its entire life, male or female, they both have very definite needs. They're not able to thrive in these captive situations, being constantly exposed to people, the bullhook, uh, cruel treatment, um, dominance by us to make them do things for our entertainment. And you catch them in a really bad mood. So rather than use the word fault, I'd say... Um, it's it's a it's a an expected response and they've acted on it so get in a bad mood we've all blown up and when you've got a four to six ton animal that decides that it's had enough it leads to disaster so once again it's a reason not to keep elephants in captivity that's what this whole program is about why we need to change our mindset about elephants and quote-unquote wildlife in captivity so let's move on there's a very I'm sorry go ahead I'd just like to say one thing though and that is that in the United States there has been quite a movement toward giving elephants more space I don't think we have gone nearly uh, far enough nowhere, nowhere near far enough but but compared to what's going on in the rest of the world uh the U.S. has really, you know, moved ahead. And it is, but what's horrifying is now there is such demand for these baby elephants in, in, you know, in Asian countries. um, And and that is, that is really a problem that we have to, to uh, confront. So as we've grown up enlightening in our mindset, and maybe it's one thing we can actually say we're being a leader in these days. We have to speak up and help the rest of the world that is facing the same industrialized uh, population expansion explosion pressure that we've had several hundred years to deal with. They're dealing with in 10 to 15 years with a, a huge burst in uh, middle class economic uh wherewithal to do things that shouldn't be done anymore. So it's really important our voices can lead to helping shift mindsets elsewhere. So once again, uh, we will be providing the links where you can sign these petitions and do what you can. There are so many campaigns, petitions, uh, advocacy, organizations, sanctuaries. It's the donor, it's our, the public's responsibility to do their due diligence and help stop what's going on. So um, we're leading, let's lead into this really exciting project. Uh, I'd like to say here and announce for the first time, uh, Elephant Voices is Wild Eyes's newest grantee because uh, we like to fund those projects that are critical toward moving our, our awareness forward about wildlife and wildlife conservation. And since the PAUSE conference, I've understood very much how um, shifting mindsets of captive animals is going to have a huge difference on what happens in the wild. So Joyce and her colleagues, through many, many years of research, have recorded, as we talked about, elephant sounds, elephant voices. Did you connect that now? Mm-hmm. So um, tell us about this this project. Well, um, as you've noted, I've spent many years recording elephants, but I've also uh, spent many years 
documenting their different gestures, the postures, their gestures, their behaviors. Because studying elephants, it was really important for me to understand what they were trying to communicate with other animals, not only vocally, but also uh, using their body. Um, and I met, uh, back in 1999, I met Petter Granley, who is now my husband and Elephant Voices colleague. And he, he came from a different background from me. He's, uh, uh, he was uh, um, uh, a manager and uh, studied communication, but not animal communication. And he said, well, you know, why are you keeping all this scientific work just, you know, available for other scientists? Why not make it available to the public? So we then set up Elephant Voices. Elephant Voices was about the voices of elephants, but also acting as a voice for elephants. And we decided to set up databases online with all of the knowledge that we had. So all the sounds of elephants and all the different ways that elephants use to communicate. So we have what we call the gestures database and we have the elephant calls database and you can find those on Elephant Voices. And we we set those up back in, I guess it was around 2003 and they've gone through various updates at different times. but they still have the old pictures taken with our first digital camera, which are very low resolution and not particularly good. And we wanted to upgrade the whole database with newer pictures, with video, to be able to share this um, um, in lots of different ways with the public, to educate the public about elephants as much as possible. Well, this is so that's our plan. This and this is what makes it so exciting. So, um, for our audience out there, this is something you can fund. You can donate to Wild Eyes at wildeyes.org and specify elephant voices, and the money will go to this project. And this is what makes conservation happen. It's not conservation is sort of become this um, umbrella of an understanding but not necessarily what it takes to make it happen its its larger goal is to pre protect the habitat protect species educate raise awareness but the smaller parts that really make it up is raising um, our knowledge database about why this is so important so this is something you can get involved in you can help fund this uh, fund this project to get all this body of work, these images, this knowledge, tangible to you, to us, to um, help us understand more about what elephants are saying, not only to each other, but what maybe they're telling to us. So um, tell us a bit more about how this will um, actually end up being. Will it be a book? Will it be an online resource? Um, will it be a children's book? How are we going to reach this wide variety of um, audience? age groups, levels? I'd like to say first, though, Ellie, that I think, what, you know, whenever you talk about animals communicating, people's first reaction is, oh, you know, elephants communicate? Mm. Um, and, pe and, and people get very excited about it. And that's, I think that's one of the reasons why this is important, is that you can really reach people. If you, if you, if you can tell people 
what elephants are saying to one another, however means, through gestures or through their voices, um, people, people get a, feel an affinity toward them. And if you feel an affinity and you start to love elephants, then you start to care. And that's, that's what we have to turn here. So, of course, we'll have the online databases. Those are already there, but we're going to make them much more accessible to people, much more interesting um, through you know, both images and, and video. Uh, and then we we like to do you know a field maybe a, an e field guide to elephant behavior. Um, certainly love to do some children's books, but I think we kind of let it evolve. You know, with the whole ebook, um, you know, development of ebooks. I think it it offers all sorts of possibilities that we'd like to explore. This is so incredibly exciting. It just really fires me up. So a I'm thrilled to be able to be a part of this and help this move on and B, I hope our listeners uh, fund this project either directly through elephantvoices.org uh, or through Wild Eyes and specify that you want your your support to go to this project. So you mentioned something that to me I, I didn't bring it up because I take it so much for granted. Animals communicate. Um, of course they do. They're just not speaking English and we as humans <laughs> tend to think in terms of our thought processes and our point of view, our world perspective, and interpret it as though they're telling us something without necessarily realizing that the animal mind is separate than ours and they are saying things um, to each other and listening through listening and watching through body language, gestures, and understanding the animal mind will help us better understand what they're they're saying, which may not have anything at all to do with us. But anybody who has a pet, a dog, a cat, knows their animals are talking to us. So um, this is very exciting. Uh, tell us uh, a little more where through the website we can find uh, some of the work that you've already put together. Well, if you go on um, Elephant Voices... And I'm going to go there myself right now. I've got it right here so in front of me. <laughs> so if you go to if you go to Elephant Voices, you should be able to see all sorts of information there about elephant communication, elephant right. sense and sociality, elephant communication, um, and then there's multimedia resources. And under there, there's the elephant call types database. There's the elephant uh, calls database context, the different contexts in which they call, and then there's the elephant gestures database. So that's that's sort of where the, those databases are at the moment. I'm quickly perusing this as you're talking, and it, it's fascinating. So I really hope our listeners take a moment and go check this out because it's amazing. It really is. I'm so excited, and it's, it's thrilling <laughs> to be a part of this, and uh, anybody can help. Uh, that's what's so exciting is you can can help support this. So moving forward, we've so got. Uh, sorry, help. go ahead. I said so grateful for your help. We've been wanting to do this for you know for many years, and it's really exciting to us. Well, thank you, and that's that's what we're here for. We we're a small organization with a small budget, but we make it count. So every donor dollar, ninety five percent of your dollar 
goes to the project on the ground to make something happen. Uh, so it's worthwhile to give to Wild Eyes, and it's worthwhile, certainly, no matter where you are, who you are, to give directly to elephantvoices.org. So we've got like a minute left. What would be the main takeaway that you would like our listeners, our audience, over the entire world, we have a global listenership, what would you like like them to hear from you? Well, I think I'd like everybody to think w- about what what a world would be like without elephants. I, to be honest, I just, I can't imagine it. And I think that we have to do everything we can to ensure that elephants survive and that elephants are treated with with the kindness and respect that they deserve and this requires really educating people um, so that people understand that elephants have thoughts they have feelings they care about one another they care about their own lives they care about surviving and uh, it's just about sharing that across the world Well, I think you've summed it up wonderfully. Um, I think the most poignant thing uh, you you have said right now is imagine a world without elephants. We have so taken it for granted through our zoos, our circuses, through uh, safaris, uh, seeing them in the wild, changing our mindset. And Ed Stewart had said an a wonderful thing at the pause conference. Do we want our children to grow up with the vision of an elephant standing on its head in a costume as that representing elephants, or do we want to see it wild and free, born wild, staying free for the rest of its life? So that's the point we need to consider. That's the tipping point, the turning point we're on today, and we can do something about it. So we're out of time. Joyce, thank you so much for this conversation today. Thank you, Ellie. And um, I look forward to working with you and hearing more. And we'll keep our wild world updated as this project moves forward. Forward, Sorry. So that's it for today. Thank you. This is Ellie Weiss with Dr. Joyce Poole and Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. 